Hi, and thanks for hitting the snooze button. I'm Neil Hedley. Thanks for being here for this week's edition. We're going to get you an interview with award-winning author Roy Parvin, whose career was just going gangbusters. He's chugging along, writing, and one night he just can't sleep. Then that became two nights, and then three, and then it turned into what he calls my year of sleeping dangerously, cautionary tale that he has written for anyone who has ever tried to self-diagnose their sleep issues, and even for people who've seen someone other than the sleep specialist. Lots of information here on just how far sideways this can go and why we've started to include interviews with our very own panel of sleep experts who are only too happy to take your question. Details on how you can get your question in front of our panel of sleep experts coming at the end of the show and on our website at thesnoozebutton.com. But in the meantime... Here's Roy Parvin. Okay, so I'm going to start this the way that we start all the episodes of the Snooze Button now, no matter who they are. Uh, Roy, I want to find out how you slept last night. I had a good night's sleep. I was really anticipating this talk, but I had a little time dropping off. But I, I've learned that sometimes it can take you a little longer than you want to drop off. I, but I got about seven and a half hours. Wow. And and for you, that's that's rarefied air. That is rarefied air compared to what I've been through the last number of years, so... I'm loving it. So how long has it been since you sort of reset your sleep? I Well, I reset my sleep once they finally figured out what was wrong, but then I had to get off all the drugs that they gave me because I had a misdiagnosis and I didn't really need the drugs. So the drugs then getting off the drugs made me go through rebound insomnia, which was in fact worse than the insomnia I, I initially encountered. So let's take this a few steps back and let's begin with this conversation about August the 11th, 2016. Talk sure. to me about that night. It was a night that a friend came to town I had not seen in a long time and it was a really exciting night and I didn't sleep that night and I chalked it up to the fact that this was someone I hadn't seen and it was a natural for just a form of excitement rather than anything else to worry about. But then the next night I didn't sleep. And then the next night I didn't sleep. And by the, by that time, I finally told my wife that I was not sleeping. I was a little bit embarrassed about it. I thought it was just something I could power through. And then it took on a life of its own after that. I didn't, I didn't achieve REM sleep for 339 straight days. I'm going to ask you to say that number again, slowly. <laughs> 339 straight days without REM sleep. Uh, is there any kind of research out there for, uh, you know, I remember an old episode of MASH where they talked <laughs> about uh, how many days in a row can you stay awake? And I think the answer was 12, but you have to keep dancing. Um, <laughs> well, I, I was experiencing micro sleeps. I was basically, after I took my sleep test, I found out that I was waking myself up every 90 seconds because I couldn't breathe. So, I was I was having sleep, but it was very, very, very poor sleep. If it was a blanket, it was very, very threadbare. Here's what's fun about uh, the parallels between your situation and mine, and, and I use the word fun very cautiously. You talk about waking yourself up every 90 seconds because you can't breathe. Uh, the results of my sleep test, which we'll get into on uh, next week's episode, uh, I kick violently every 45 seconds all night. Is it periodic yeah. limb movement? Yeah, yeah. And it's violent. And and it's to the point where more often than not, it wakes me up. 
about every and and it's you you know what this is like it's one of right. those where you wake up you're not conscious that you're awake but you have awakened for even if it's just a second and then you go back to sleep uh for me that happens supposedly every 45 seconds all night right right so you're not achieving REM sleep either uh no I'm hardly in REM sleep at all and and my I guess what they call stage three sleep um, where you're supposed to be at about 20%, you know, and that's right. where your glymphatic system and all those wonderful things kick in. I'm right. at 1% instead of 20%. Right, right. Yeah, now, so it's it's fun. Now, I mean, you were basically living an episode of the TV series House. <laughs> I, I suppose so. I mean, it's... It, 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 I, I I probably should have been watching reruns of that show. It it, it might have consoled me during that period, but uh, <laughs> I felt entirely alone. It seemed like the rest of the world was sleeping, and I was not. And part of the thing when you're not sleeping, you tend you tend to self isolate. You don't look your best for one thing. You look fairly awful, you, and you get very self conscious about that. And so there's this thing that happens, and it's. Culturally, I talk about that in my book that I think we're culturally groomed to think of the, the, the non-sleeper having some kind of psychological unrest, where in both of our cases, it's something physical. Yeah, yeah. And, and something physical that uh, apparently in both of our cases, we weren't even aware of. I mean, for you, talk to me about the journey because I, I, I mean, I don't want to, um, I don't want to rip sales of the book out of your hands <laughs> and, and we'll talk specifically about the book in a lot of detail. Um, but just kind of give me the treetops of, of where this bizarre road took you. Well, we, uh, for the first number of months, we didn't see a doctor, uh, we both didn't have, we were not educated in sleep medicine. We thought we could sort of power through it. I tried acupuncture. We drove all over to get rarefied herbs we'd heard about, you know, pharmaceutical grade melatonin. We did everything. We, we downloaded apps, uh, meditated, tried yoga. Yoga did work. I actually wrote a yoga book. That was one of the good things that came. Actually, I got two books out of this horrible experience. But in one of them is a yoga book that's coming out next month. So some things did work, but nothing. Yoga solved the problem of not sleeping in the sense that it calmed me down. It did not get me to sleep. You wouldn't recommend what happened to you as something that should go into a writer's toolbox, though. No, 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 no. Suffering is good for writers in, in, in small degrees, I think. That was too much. And then finally, we did go to a doctor uh, after about five months, and that doctor misdiagnosed and gave me a lot of very, very dangerous drugs that I didn't need. And after we finally got the right diagnosis, the drugs were still hanging around like a dark cloud that took a long time to get off of. What I love about my year of sleeping dangerously is the way that this story is written don't take this the wrong way, but I was almost sorry to see that you fixed your sleep because I wish the story had gone on longer just so I could read more of it. Like, I love the way the entire story unfolds. I love the way it's written. Was this difficult to put on paper for you? Well, you know, it was funny because I was, my wife, Janet, works downstairs in a different end of the publishing business, and she would hear me alternately laughing or crying as I was writing this thing. She wouldn't come upstairs because she knew that would sort of bother me, but it came out fairly quickly um, because I, I also think in a weird way, it's a love story beyond, you know, the, the, the story of, of, of my, of my sleep crisis. 
it's a story of two people, you know, unwilling to give up. And so that part, I think there was some stuff that Janet didn't know about when she read it later. It was very, very difficult. So that part was very hard for me. And I typically, before this professionally, I had not written in the first person for over 20 years. So this was the first time I felt like talking about myself in a very, very long period of time. And, and certainly the crisis moved me to do that. My first impulse was to tell the story. And the second one was, I don't want anyone to have to go through what I went through. And so I would, you know, it's to help people basically. So before you saw a doctor, because you tried to navigate this yourself, which, you know, navigating it myself is part of what led me to the road that I'm on now, because mm -hmm. you talk about melatonin and all these various things, um, which are all things that at one point or another have been, you know, clubs in my bag, um, most of which are no longer there. And so I decided, <laughs> you know what, let's, let's take this right back to square one and start over again. Did you at any point in this journey, cause I'm, I'm fascinated by this. Did you tell friends? Did you tell family that this was going on? You know, did you wait until you got to like 105 nights before you mentioned it to people? And then when you eventually did, did they start chiming in with all their helpful suggestions? I at first just kept it to myself. And maybe that's because I'm a writer and I'm used to being alone and solitary. But again, I felt different. I felt there was something that separated me from all people. Everybody else seemed to be sleeping and they didn't seem to be thinking about it as much as I was. So I tried to, I thought, well, I can just get a lot more writing done. So I, at first I was just writing like a house on fire. And then I hit the wall sort of of that exhaustion of not getting REM sleep, which you know about and not achieving, but of waking yourself, of having that micro sleep. And there's a sort of insanity that at first took hold. And then after a while, after I was on the medication, a kind of dementia took hold where I stopped driving the car because I would forget where I parked the car. Uh, at a certain point, they were just kept on going out on that emotional explanation for what was going wrong. And they thought I was bipolar. So they put me on lithium and they said, well, you're not taking enough lithium. And I would forget five minutes after lunch what I had eaten for lunch. Wow. And it, it just my whole life just unspooled. I became pretty much like a child. And my wife, Janet, pretty much had to stop working. We both worked at home for ourselves. And she had to just, you know, take care of her adult child. Um, until we until we could figure out what was in that. This is when I was cycling on all different sorts of dangerous benzodiazepines and different sleep medications. Nothing was working. It's a shock just how long they took to get to the point of figuring, well, maybe I should take a sleep test because they just kept on explaining it as, I mean, it must have been, they, they, they saw a writer on that little part that they filled in on the form. They thought I was crazy or something because they just kept on saying it was a psychological problem. Which I think, yeah. all, which, which, which I think was also a reason why I didn't feel like sharing it with people because they kept on deeming it a psychological problem. And I think that, I think this country, the world needs to have a, still needs to have a smart discussion about what psychological problem means and how many people have psychological problems. But I felt stigmatized. 
Well, and they say that everybody is dealing with something, you know, right. and that happens at very flowery times. You know, when we lose a major celebrity, for example, uh, to suicide, right. uh, wow, is social media ever filled with references to, hey, you know, everybody's dealing with something, reach out. But when we're not in the middle of one of those, you know, for example, post-Robin Williams scenarios, right? boy, do people all of a sudden go back to being judgmental and, like you say, stigmatizing and all of those things with mental illness. It's, you know, and in your case, it wasn't even mental illness to begin with. It was a physical manifestation of a symptom. And, and, but yes, because writer shows up on your resume, they (laughs) automatically assume there must be something afoot. Right. Exactly. He, he has a lot of unnecessary emotions probably. Now you said that this 339 nights basically derailed your career. Right. I was working on a novel and I stopped working on it. Um, I really couldn't do anything. I mean, basically, it was sort of getting me through the day and hoping that maybe this would be the night that would be different and I would get to sleep. And every it was like a test I would fail every single night. And the rest, I would, I would, I, I would get up and I would lie in bed and I would get up in the morning and I would think all day about getting to sleep that night. I'm sure you've been through that cycle before. Sure. It just becomes self-defeating. You start sleep becomes it has this weight in your life, and while you're there, sleep is you, you think you're going to be hopeless. You, you sort of write the self fulfilling prophecy that hasn't even happened yet, and so it's it's really just a strange thing that takes over your world the way it warps everything. When you talk about the micro naps and things like that that you were getting periodically. Did anything ever happen to you, for example, dozing off while you were driving or anything like that? That never happened to me. I was one of the rare people who was fatigued rather than being sleepy. I was able, I'm an athlete and maybe that had something to do with it. I was able to sort of shift down to a very low gear and bump along that way. And so I was always fatigued. There's a difference between being tired and being sleepy. It's a huge distinction in the sleep community. So I was able to just sort of operate at a very, I was able to ride my bicycle. I'm I'm a bicycle racer. I have a very, I ride on a very skinny tire and I was able to do that somehow. And, but it was very, very rare. A sleep specialist later told me that I only know of one other case where a person manifests the same symptoms that I did. So I was rare, but I still think that a sleep test should have been called for much earlier. You know, I, I think if, I think that every single practice should have a sleep specialist on the practice. Sleep, sleep test shouldn't be this thing that we wait for like you did, Neil. They should be, if there's a sleep problem, they should be much, much more available to everybody. Well, and especially as we find out, you know, the impact, I mean, everyone talks about dementia and, and, and Alzheimer's and things like that, that are, are in some ways promoted by a, a lack of sleep. In so many different ways, because a lot of people take Benadryl or something every night as a way of, because Benadryl will knock you out. Antihistamines will do that. I don't mean to dis Benadryl in any way. It's just a fact of it. And Antihistamines are found now possibly to cause dementia. So there's all these sort of, you know, 
workarounds that people have without getting medication that might be damaging them much, much later. Yeah, and that's and that's one of the things that came up in my journey as well mm-hmm. is that when the alarm goes off, I'm on. You know, right. so I don't get the luxury of, and and this is not in any way, shape, manner, or form meant to knock people who you know, for example, work at a at an insurance company during the day. Right. But if you get to your desk job and it takes until ten thirty for the coffee to kick in, you can <laughs> probably get away with that. Uh, for me, if I get an hour and a half into my workday and the coffee hasn't kicked in yet, then that's been. Uh, an hour and a half of really sucky radio to wake up to. So I don't, I don't get, uh, you know, for example, I don't get to take sleep medication to go to bed because maybe it won't wear off in time. And maybe there will be that fog, that hangover. And that's a risk I can never take. Now for you, you talk about the cycling and you talk about racing and all of that. Were there other, other than the sleeplessness, other physical manifestations of what was going on with you? You sort of close down and become a shell. So things that were important to you doing before, like maybe taking a walk with the dog, you wouldn't do. So I I, I was operating at a bare minimum where I could still ride my bike, but I would sit and either look at the internet. I, I would look at the news incessantly because I would, I, I would look to watch the news change because and it was just because I couldn't really watch TV. I didn't really want to reading the paper was too static. And so I would do that for a while. And I would just find if I could move from activity to activity, I could navigate through the day. Wow. The book fall you know, I mean begins basically on on August the eleventh, twenty sixteen, and and takes us through in great detail. Uh, that first night, 339 nights later, when you finally got to sleep, and then, you know, the, the stuff that came after. And and one of the things I found interesting toward the end of the book, you talk about the doctor who kind of brought you down this road and your decision to, as you worded it in the book, put the whole thing to bed and just not pursue it. Right. Tell me about that. Well, I... You know, I, I'm, I have a very strong sense of right and wrong, but, and I, I, I probably could have fought him in court, but I thought I would have to see him every day and what would come of this? And I would have to relive the experience in depositions and my life would not move forward. It would be in this stasis. And that's a lot of sort of like a metaphor of not sleeping. Sure. I thought, and I thought, well, you know, I am sleeping right now. And what was the end going to be? If it was just going to be revenge, why do it? So I didn't really have a clear motive. I, I wasn't sure that it would come to anything anyway. I, I tried to complain to the state and the form was so small, it made it very clear that they really didn't want complaints. So I really just felt it was most important thing to do was just to get on, get on with my life and and rebuild and start writing again and hanging out with my wife without worrying about sleep let's take sleep out of our vocabulary and just get back to our life so that's what i decided to do i suppose i was selfish in it one of the things that i've i've started talking to people about and it's interesting to get the responses on it i feel like and tell me if if 
I'm in the ballpark for your experience as well. I feel like things like eating and sleeping are areas of science that based on the sheer length of time we've been doing them <laughs> and the number of people that do them, I feel like we should have that licked by now, don't you? I do. And I think that eating and sleeping are very, very closely linked. I don't know about your experience. I lost about 50 pounds during my year of sleeping dangerously. And I feel it sort of changed my metabolism. But it's true that that I think we're with food and sleep, we're sort of left to bump along on our own. I had to learn myself that I was gluten free. And I think that there should be easier ways of figuring these things out. And, uh, uh, I think that sleep is treated like this tremendously mysterious thing. When I first, when we were communicating via email and, and you shared with me your sleep story, and I was sure that it was all behavioral because you were getting up early in the morning for work and your circadian rhythms were all off. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised to hear that there's a physical thing going along with this as well. Yeah, I was I was quite surprised as well. But that's the thing is that because 7 billion people sleep, I think there's this attitude that we don't need to pay particular attention to it. It's just something that happens. And if it's something that's not, you know, it's kind of the way that people sort of stigmatize various forms of cancer where, oh, you get, you, you have lung cancer. Well, you must have been a smoker or you mm -hmm. must have this, or you must have that. And people find, oh, you've got sleep problems. Well, this or that or the other thing must also be true about you. And it should be easy to fix, but you're walking and talking proof that it is sometimes very, very difficult to fix. And sometimes the medical practitioners on whom we depend to take care of these sorts of things, you can wind up living an episode of house because they're stumbling around in the dark just as much as you are. Yes. Yes. And, and, you know, people make mistakes. Doctors make mistakes. Mine made a misdiagnosis. He missed what was going on. And so that was the other thing I felt. I said, you know, he's human and he made a mistake. He stuck to it longer than he probably should have. But, you know, I, I would imagine in your industry that there's a stigma Everybody is going on no sleep and there's a macho kind of go on no sleep, get the story. So if you complain about having a sleep problem, you're seen as less than that macho newsman. I don't know. Is it, does that happen in your line of business? It does. I mean, there's that. And, and it's interesting. We are recording this conversation on September the 11th. And, and there was a great deal of conversation today about, you know, coverage from people who do what I do for a living. And to go and get the story, it didn't matter if you were putting your safety in jeopardy to go and get mm -hmm. the story. It didn't matter if you needed to be, you know, for people who were working in New York City uh, 18 years ago today, uh, it didn't matter if it wasn't safe to be around the pile. It didn't matter if you needed to stay in proximity to the pile for 23 hours to get the story. You needed to get the story. And I think about people like, for example, one of the one of the examples that jumps to mind constantly about a person who, as far as I can tell, doesn't get any sleep at all, but is perhaps the happiest man in America is <laughs> Al Roker. You know, and oh, really? I, I, rem I remember watching a video of Al Roker and his workout regimen that he takes part in every day before he goes to do the Today Show. And I just look at him. I'm thinking to myself, 
how are you functioning? I have enough trouble just getting into the studio for four o'clock. But by the time I'm getting into the studio at four, Al's already done a full workout and he's gone <laughs> running and he's got all kinds of stuff going on. There are people out there like that. I, I've been reading about that recently. There have been studies that people can get less than six hours of sleep and function well, but they're the lucky ones. They're yeah. the lucky few. Well, and the, and the sad part is that uh, most people who are only getting by on six hours of sleep a night, a lot of them don't feel like anything's wrong. You know, I, I hearken back to episode one with uh, Dr. Adrian Owen, who's one of the world's leading neuroscientists. Mm -hmm. And he talks about this idea that consider the hard charging type A who, you know, almost wears his five hours of sleep as a badge of honor, except that there's a possibility and isn't it a possibility mm -hmm. worth exploring that if he were to jump from five hours a night to six hours a night that he could potentially unlock a whole other level of performance that he's not even aware is out there it's like the old paul riser joke paul riser the mm -hmm. comedian and the guy from mad about you i saw him on carson one night talking about that feeling that we've all had where suddenly out of nowhere your ears clear and you right. didn't realize that they were plugged <laughs> and and you get that moment where you're just oh that's really nice right but it can be like that for people with sleep too who have a whole other level that they haven't begun to explore yet and all they need to do is stay in bed a bit longer i think you're right a lot of a lot of learning to sleep is just learning to let go and people cannot do that that's the key i mean you can't force it to happen that's the part about lying in bed waiting you just you have to let go my wife is a complete pro at this and uh, <laughs> it kills me but <laughs> she's very inspiring to watch she is like the champion sleeper did your wife notice the periodic limb movement at all because mine did i had suffered from periodic limb movement as well and janet would sleep right through it so here's here's what happened the other night and i i haven't named this person uh, but don't worry it's not him it was a dream the first <laughs> dream i had in years that i can remember happened the other night wonderful and congratulations we, well it's it's a bizarre dream though because here's what happened uh you know the tv show scandal sure Sure. And, and he was also uh, the bad guy in the movie Ghost. There's an actor named Tony Goldwyn, who I think is ridiculously talented. Um, in a dream that I had, uh, Tony Goldwyn was coming after me. And we weren't <laughs> in some kind of production together. I had apparently done something to piss Tony Goldwyn off. <laughs> and he was coming after me. And I literally, in the dream, I said, and, you know, forgive me, this is not going on terrestrial radio, otherwise I would have to bleep this. Um, I uh, said to him in the dream, if you lay a hand on me, I will kick you in the balls. <laughs> and he lunged at me in the dream, Tony Goldwyn did, um, and and I stayed true to my word and I kicked him, except that when I kicked him in the dream, I very quickly got an elbow in the ribs from my wife who said, what the hell are you doing? You just kicked me in the leg. What are you doing? What did I do to you? <laughs> well, you need to explain to your wife that any dream is a good dream because your mind is sort of resetting the previous day's worth of stress or all the stress you've built up. So that little kick 
was really just you resetting yourself and you'll try not to do that again, perhaps. But to find out that I do that 82 times an hour, that's, yeah, uh, that's, that's a little excessive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very stunning. I'm sure you were stunned when you got that information. It all happens in the dark when you're not aware. Right, exactly. Do you feel like they should, this is a question out of left field, should they teach sleep in school? I think so. At college, because the same kind of masochistic, I don't sleep, is sort of respected that there's still this question in American schools about what time school should start, that they've done studies that schools, kids are actually much more receptive to learning if the, if the, if the clock is set back. So I think education all the way through um, is necessary. It's fascinating how many of those skills that we are continuing to find out are pretty critical, you know, for day-to-day -day existence. And, and we, for the most part, wait for our kids to stumble upon the answers themselves. Right. And it's scary that that's still happening. I mean, we, when we were growing up, that was sex education. Don't let that be sleep. <laughs> um. Wow. And, and I'm glad you just did that because it reminds me that there are uh, moments in the book and, and turns of phrase and things like that in the book, uh, My Year of Sleeping Dangerously, that, uh, like I said before, I, I kind of wished that the sleep troubles would stretch out a little bit longer because <laughs> I was enjoying the reading so much. Are you able to look back on that 339 nights with a little bit more, let's call it, non-judgmental remove? I think so. I, I think all during the process, I mean, the thing that surprised me was that there was a lot of humor in the book as long as, as, as well as this, all, all through my suffering. And that was sort of how I got through it was sort of laughing the whole way. And a lot of the way I remembered the story was all, were all the jokes that I told as it was happening. And so I think I had that remove, but now it's one of these things where I'm sorry I went through it, but I'm not entirely sorry because my life has deviated. I discovered yoga, which I never would have discovered, and I wrote a book about yoga. So all of these interesting dog legs off the main avenue of my life have happened. And so I just, you know, chalk it up to being life experience at this point. Tell me about the yoga book, because that's, I think you said what, that's a month away? It's a month away and it's written for guys like you and me. It's called Yoga for the Inflexible Male. And I designed the class. I'm not a yoga person, but there was a new yoga studio coming to town. And I said, would you please design a course called Yoga for the Inflexible Male? I'm sure there are other guys out there like me who are would love to do yoga, but we're sort of yoga phobic in front of women because we have our pride. And they designed the class and... um a great teacher came out of the woodwork named Jerry, and he's a 72-year-old ex-wrestler, tough guy. And each pose has a what I call the good, the bad, and the ugly. So there's different versions for guys because guys are not that limber. And the class sold out. And I realized very quickly that there was a book in here, and it was sold to Random House in less than a year. So I think there are a lot of yoga-phobic guys that really want to do yoga out there. Sure. I mean, from I, I mean, my wife uh, took the yoga teacher training. She went through all of that. Um, you know, never ended up becoming a, a teacher. She and I would go. We had a string going of I think I think there was a point where we went twenty seven or twenty eight days in a row. Wow. Uh, I mean, I had I had an ab. 
<laughs> it was that effective. Right. Um, and then I just kind of fell off the wagon and, and have been looking for excuses to get back to it. But you're right in that you look around the room and, and maybe this is a gender specific thing. Maybe men are just worse at covering it up than women are, but there is a lot of self-consciousness and a lot of uh, rumination and a lot of staring at yourself in the mirror and thinking, oh, God, does anybody else see me from this angle? Those kinds of things. <laughs> exactly. We all, after class, compete to see who does which pose the worst. And like doing the worst <laughs> is is like the best. So we have this reverse kind of psychology going. But still, I mean, we've been doing it now for two years and I think the self-consciousness is going away, but there's a great deal of camaraderie that we're sort of pioneers in doing this. Now, you haven't worked your way up to acro yoga or something like that yet, have you? Oh, God, no, no, no. I'm, I'm still doing yoga with training wheels. You know, so for, for the uninitiated, acro yoga, my, my favorite characterization of this is if you remember the scene from the end of Dirty Dancing, <laughs> where where baby jumps up into the air and Johnny catches her uh, on his arms. Imagine that same balancing act being done uh, with her putting all of her body weight on your outstretched legs instead in such a way that if you even flinch a little bit, she will land with all of her body weight on your face. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's yoga for the impossible male, I think so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that'll be the next book. Um, right, right. Talk to me about what we need to do. You know, we've mentioned the journey that you went on and, and how you think that, um, you know, every medical practice should have a sleep specialist in it, which is a terrific idea. But do we also need to have sleep studies and things like that become near the top of the list of things that we check for instead of, you know, the Hail Mary at the bottom of the list. Absolutely. Like things like home tests, since I've gotten my sleep tests have gotten much, much more reliable. Why not make them on an insurance level available to a lot of people? There are a lot of people out there walking around with sleep problems that they don't even know they have. So maybe once they, you know, and people, you know, Sleep apnea for long, for a very long time has had this cliche of being a obese, older man's problem. Children have sleep apnea. Women have sleep apnea. We just need better education out there. And to make it probably far more accessible, too. Because, I mean, when you talk about the expense <clears throat> of going to get a sleep study, you know, if you're not covered by insurance, right. well, then good luck to you. Exactly. Exactly. We paid for it out of our own pocket because my insurance company was dragging its feet too much. So we decided we want to find out what's wrong with me. And we paid out of pocket, basically. It was that important. It should not be that hard to get a sleep test. Do you think we're close to a time where the tests that we can do at home are anywhere close to the results that we get in a sleep lab? Because, for example, I look at my Fitbit. Um, and, and I've talked to so many people now about whether or not I can trust the data that's being spit back at me by my Fitbit. And there are people who will tell you that it's, it's close, you know, Apple with the, I mean, there have been as many different versions of the iPhone as there have been Rocky movies and the <laughs> latest, the latest iPhone apparently has sleep tracking built into it. 
at least according to what I've read. Do you feel like we're there yet or do you feel like that's a ways off? I think commercially it's a ways off, although I think that companies that are making perhaps sleep apnea equipment or other, I think the big advances will come from them in the future. And I think that there will be ways where the person who makes an inexpensive sleep test that works is going to be the Edison of the sleep business. So then what do we do to get past the economics of it? The, uh, I, I don't want to characterize it this way, but unfortunately it's the best way to do it. It feels to me on a certain level like sleep testing and those kinds of things is an avenue that's available to white people. I think you're right. I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that we need, I think the fact that we're having the conversation about sleep, the fact that you and I, the fact that you have a, uh, have a podcast is a big advance because even over a couple of years ago, it seemed to me that nobody knew about sleep or I was too afraid to talk about sleep. It seems right now in our culture, maybe it's just me because I went through a sleep crisis. People are more willing to talk about sleep. And I think that's a good start. It's not where we need to be, but over where we were 10 years ago, five years ago, I, I think it's a big difference. I think that's a pretty good, uh, a pretty great spot to wrap it up. I, I appreciate the time. I, uh, I'm grateful that your account of what happened to you is out there because uh, you went down a far bumpier road than I, and well, at least so far, and, <laughs> and have come out on the other side of it. Uh, and, and from everything you're telling me, it, it looks like you've licked this. I mean, do you, by way of, I guess, a last question, do you worry about sliding back down the hill? I'm knocking on what is the answer to this, but no, I, I don't. I feel that I've been through this thing and I've learned from, perhaps because I have, aside from the sleep, I feel like I've learned something from a psychological or personal level about myself, that I'm tougher than I think I am, that I can get through things, that all along when these doctors said that something was wrong with me, they had the wrong thing wrong with me. And I had a feeling all the way through that they, so there's a lot of good things about myself that came out of this awful experience. I'm glad you made time for this tonight, Roy. Thank you so much for uh, for, for sharing your story. Um, let's make sure that people know where to find the book, where to find the yoga book, which, by the way, doesn't have Roy's name on the cover. It has his pseudonym on the cover. Well, let's cover off all of that. Where can we find you? The yoga book will be found everywhere. My uh, year of sleeping dangerously. Uh, my wife is telling me, what should I say, Janet? Yoga Oh, my name is Yoga Mat, not Roy. I wrote under the Nam de Namaste of Yoga Mat. It's called Yoga for the Inflexible Male. It's a, it'll be available at bookstores everywhere online. And uh, it's uh, from an imprint from Random House. They have a lot of people, so they make sure they get the books everywhere. And hopefully, this Christmas season, you won't be able to go to any kind of bookstore or gift store and not find it. Um, my book of yours, Sleeping Dangerously, we're now bringing out to publishers. And so hopefully that'll be... Next couple of years will be out. And where do we track down what you're up to on a day-to-day -day basis on the uh, interwebs? Are you out there on the socials and all those sorts of things? I'm out there completely on all the socials, just the way I'm supposed to be. My publisher's really happy. I have a webpage, uh, royparvin.net. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the normal places. There you go. Roy, thanks again for making time for this tonight. I really appreciate it. 
Thanks so much, Neil. There you go, Roy Parvin. All the info on Roy, including links to him, his books, including the new one, Yoga for the Inflexible Male. Um, that's all in the show notes and on our website. Also, on our website, you will find just a ton of helpful links there, including a contest page where you can win books by people like Roy. Uh, you can leave a question for our panel of sleep experts. Either leave a voicemail or there's a link there to send uh, an email to our panel. Super easy way there for you as well to rate and review the show. Help give social proof that, yeah, people are listening and that they're digging it. We'd appreciate that. Also, a link for you to leave feedback there. Links to all our social media profiles. And yes, if you are so compelled to support the show with a donation in an effort to help keep it commercial free, uh, and free, period, uh, then you can do that on our website as well at thesnoozebutton.com. All those links waiting for you there. And remember as well, if you're crunched for time but you love the information, there's a nine-minute version of every episode with uh, a different podcast that we call The Snooze Button Express. So you can grab that in your podcast app as well, or those episodes are also on our website. The website sounds like one-stop shopping. I'm kind of digging this. Hey, uh, that's it for this week. We'll see you back here next time. Until then, my name's Neil Headley. Hey, get some sleep, would you?